Welcome to episode number two of the Decent Crypto Podcast, our very first deep decent dive. deep dive. Today we're going to be digging into Avalanche, uh, AVAX, the AVAX token, and Avalanche, the Avalanche protocol. Um, let's see, Matt. You got so, any first, uh, first, uh, yeah. So I think like to kick it off just from a high level, like, wh- like, why are we doing this? Right. Um, yeah. th- there's a lot of media out there, a lot of podcasts mm-hmm. where they interview people, you know, high up at, at Ava labs who are sort of like, you know, have a, have a bird's eye view of this whole thing. Right. Um, but I've like tended to find that those podcasts are not necessarily as informational as I was hoping for them to be. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, what ends up happening? Uh, they end up shilling you. Yeah, they end yeah, up shilling. Yeah. Um, That's why we did not have anybody from Ava labs on this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> this is pure facts. They, they can come on for 120 seconds at a time exactly, when we start our exactly. advertiser segments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what we're really hoping to do today is give a little bit of an overview then take a deep dive into what this protocol is, how it actually works, what it can and can't do, sort of dismiss some of the rumors, validate some of the truths, and uh, overall just uh, walk away with a better understanding of Avalanche. All right, that sounds fantastic. Um, Yeah, I mean, to build off of that, like, you know, we're really trying to answer the question, why does this thing exist? Why was it created in the first place? What are the problems that it's trying to solve? What are its solutions? We're going to dig pretty deep on a technical level into what those solutions actually are, right? Um, And what the future state might look like. You know, we're going to look at the current applications that exist, some of the biggest players uh, in the space, some of the biggest supporters, you know, a lot of the bigger names, bigger funds, are invested are shilling building um, building um, on avalanche and so there's a lot going on there is a lot of money there's a lot of people that are involved so we're gonna dig into all of it um, I think to start let's let's kind of run through a quick history uh, just to give some background, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to, this is not going to be like a history lesson going deep into, uh, you know, everything about Ava labs and, um, you know, avalanche, but we, we feel like there should be some context behind everything else that we're going to talk about. Um, so, I mean, I can maybe get this started. Yeah. Let's, bit. let's hear a little history. Yeah. Okay. So this first point I actually didn't really know about, um, Avalanche was, or kind of the idea uh, behind the protocol was posted pseudonymously hmm. uh, on IPFS. Wow! Uh, in 2018, interesting. Uh, in May 2018, by a group called Team Rocket. Hmm. Um, right? Like, did you know that? That's crazy, right? Team Rocket uh, to the team moon. Ro- yeah, Team Rocket <laughs> to the moon. Right. Um, hmm. So yeah, they posted that initially. Uh, and then, and I, I guess they're still pseudonymous. Like, no, I, I don't think they go by Team Rocket anymore. Now it's a, a doxed group uh, mm-hmm. called Ava Labs. Uh, Ava Labs was started by a bunch of people from Cornell, uh, chiefly Emin Goon Serer. 
Uh, he goes by Goon uh, normally. <laughs> uh, great, great name. Uh, just, just wanted to put out there. Great name, you know. Great name. Um, so it's him, a bunch of other researchers, some of the more like vocal people. This guy Kevin Seknicki. Yes. Yeah, he's just he's always going ham on Twitter. Um, yeah. So. If you want some very opinionated and biased uh, takes on what Avalanche is and can do, uh, follow Kevin. <laughs> um, so they got started in 2020. Um, really? I guess they uh, their testnet launched in early 2020. Right, they, were, right. they started development earlier than that, uh, 2019. Well, so initially, Emin, or uh, Goon, uh, and uh, Kevin, and like one other person, they were all working together at Cornell, right? Yes. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So they're, they're a bunch of researchers uh, from Cornell. Yeah. I didn't mention where they were from. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's a, a bunch of researchers. They were doing. Um, so I, I guess like Emin himself has been around crypto for a long time. Like if you were around even Bitcoin, he's, he's written a lot of criticisms around the Bitcoin protocol. In the mm-hmm. past, around the Ethereum protocol in the past. Um, so he's been around since, I think, like the 2012, 2013 days. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I've been following him since like 2015, 2016 uh, on his just like obnoxious Twitter account. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so he's been around crypto for a long time. They have, they're all computer science researchers from Cornell. Mm-hmm. Um, and they started Ava Labs uh, in 2019. And then the... So the testnet then was launched in 2020. Um, testnet launches. They launched their token uh, in July of 2020. Right. Um, so they had a, a pre-sale. Uh, they had a public sale. Um, and the ICO finished in July of 2020. Hmm. So the, not that long ago. So not that long ago. It's been two years. Less than two years. Hmm. Um the mainnet launched in September of 2020. Wow, it's pretty quick from uh, from like starting this whole effort, raising the funds, doing the testnet, raising more funds, raising more funds. These guys have raised a lot of funds. Yeah, uh, and uh, and then going into mainnet, uh, you know, not too far after, um, and uh, and so mainnet uh, sort of didn't gain a lot of traction initially. Um, but went through, you could probably call it like periods of explosive growth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is largely incentivized growth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had the um, the Ethereum bridge launch, uh, uh, I guess in its final form or its current form, uh, like mid-2021. Um, and that was sort of hand-in-hand hand with uh, some of these like liquidity incentive uh, yeah. schemes, right? Um, right. So the Ava Labs uh, organization overall has been has been funding developers who in turn have been sort of subsidizing users with uh, with liquidity incentives. So if you you know provide a loan on Avalanche or you know provide liquidity on on one of their decentralized exchanges, you could earn some pretty outsized yields for a while. And this mm-hmm. is a model that was like pretty popular all of last year with the L1 sort of wars. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so um, they have very big investors. Uh, they have, let me read out some of the investors. It's, you know, the who's who of everybody in the space. You know, Andreessen Horowitz, CMS Holdings, Dragonfly Capital, 
Um, I think, uh, you know, Polychain, Three Arrows is a big, big uh, supporter of theirs, Leisure Prime, Galaxy. Uh, so just about everybody's in. Um, they have tons of money. Um, so kind of getting back to your point, they've had, I think, two major incentive programs. Hmm. Uh, the very first one was called Avalanche Rush. Right. Um, I think that was, what, like $200 million? Um, wow. Something like that. Um, and in that, they basically give this money to projects um, to incentivize development and to incentivize uh, people to use their platform. Hmm. Um, so let's go through maybe... Should we maybe um, take a step toward like... What is this thing now that we've yes. covered a little bit of like the history and all that? Yes, exactly. Um, let's start with, I guess, like a fundamental question, right? Like, what is wrong with Bitcoin and Ethereum and any other project that existed before Avalanche? that this thing had to be created, that you know somebody made the proposal, these researchers from Cornell decided to stop doing what they were doing and focus just on this and, and build out this protocol. Yeah, so really the, the number one issue that Avalanche is trying to solve here is uh, scalability, right? Okay. So you know we've seen as demand has grown for you know block space on the Ethereum network, we, you know, fees went from very affordable to absolutely astronomical. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of the the core thing that Avalanche is trying to solve here is is the scalability issue okay. um, of block space being a scarce resource. Uh, and so when demand increases, supply can't increase on Ethereum. And, and so prices increase as yeah. a result. And just like a real quick, uh, what's like, you know, maybe an example of that, you know, in yeah, what, so, this launched uh, in 2020, you know, before that, uh, let's say 2017, 18, 19, what, what was an issue? Uh, and this is specific to Ethereum, right? Like this is not, Avalanche is not trying to compete with Bitcoin. Right. Right. So uh, what, what's like maybe an issue that we can touch on from back in the days, uh, 2017, 18, 19, before this thing was out? I feel like I'm being quizzed here on my early Ethereum knowledge. Uh, so, I mean, I mean I have an, I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You know, just from just from my perspective yeah. as like, a, you know, someone who's not super deep on the NFT scene, but I'm more interested in like DeFi, mm -hmm. um, trying to place a, a transaction in a DeFi related protocol, like a swap on Uniswap, mm -hmm. uh, usually shouldn't cost more than like 30 bucks, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, 30 bucks, yeah, yeah, sure, I mean. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I, I've only been doing this since gas fees already got outrageous. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, there are times when it costs, you know, $150 yeah, yeah. to send a single swap swap on mm -hmm. on uniswap right it's not because everybody's swapping it's because everybody's minting nfts yeah uh and so if there's a big nft release mm -hmm. you'll see a lot of times like you know 90 percent of the block space might be taken up by by minting yeah um an nft creation is is a pretty compute intensive resource okay so it consumes a lot of gas right uh and you can only consume so much gas in a given ethereum block um, until it becomes like full, right? And so that's how Ethereum blocks work. They work based on gas. Right? Uh, yeah. It's not like, 
uh, it's not like uh, Bitcoin where it's like a certain number of transactions. It's based more. It's based more on gas, right? So like there might be some blocks that have way more transactions than others because some might be simple send receive, uh, like tons of send and receive transactions, which are less gas intensive, whereas some blocks might be tons of minting of NFTs, which are extremely gas intensive. Yeah. So like on the Ethereum blockchain, for example, like just sending ETH from one account to another is mm -hmm. the cheapest transaction, right? Right. Um, but if you want to do anything more computationally intensive than that, you know, sending a token, for example, might take twice as much gas, like which is the, the unit of compute that they use. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, you know, as as the applications on Ethereum have grown in complexity, mm -hmm. um, the the usage of gas per transaction ha has also gone up. Yeah. So, you know, the worst offender that I've come across is like doing any kind of decentralized lending, like on Aave. Okay. Super gas intensive to, you know, approve the you know sending of the tokens to Aave, actually sending the tokens, creating a you know a position based on that, borrowing tokens. All of this stuff is like super computationally intensive. I see. Um, so, because uh, there's just a lot of uh, basically like m mini transactions, right? That need to yeah, many go into... like like atomic actions. Yes. You could think of it, right? So, right. sending ETH from one account to another is like one atomic action. Yeah. Uh, but like, if I want to send you a token, mm -hmm. um, actually, the token contract can can query for all of the balances of all of the accounts for a mm -hmm. given token, um, and so it has to update in its ledger like how much you know USDC, for example, do does. Matt's account have does Karan's account have mm -hmm. um, and then it can actually do the updating of that ledger if I wanted to send you some USDC for example okay um, and that in and of itself isn't super complex gas wise but if you think about it like on Uniswap I might send my token to Uniswap mm -hmm. uh, and then have to compute how much of the other token I get out of it which mm -hmm. involves a little more math and so it's it's more gas costly okay. uh, and then actually do the receiving of that token too yeah so you can see how quickly it could add up right yeah, if you're yeah. uh, you know even if you want to send like wrapped ethereum to, to Uniswap like you have to wrap it first and yeah. that costs gas so I guess the fundamental idea here is that each one of these things takes or not takes up even it does something to the state of the blockchain right. right it changes the blockchain in some way and to do that it needs to get into a block and every time that happens you're spending gas and uh yeah kind of that's that's the, that's kind of the idea that we're getting at right yeah and so you know like a, a layman might you know be listening to us and saying guys this is crazy I, I've got a solution here. Why don't we just charge nothing for gas? Mm -hmm. uh, why don't we just make the transactions free? Mm -hmm. Like, like well, you, you know, uh, because it would <laughs> a good question. Uh, it would result in spamming of the network, right? Okay. So you can imagine if transactions were free to send, yeah, um, you would have people that you know either because they wanted to or because you know just for entertainment's sake or whatever. Uh, that that would nefariously send thousands and thousands of transactions per second. 
which would overwhelm the network's ability to to update the state of the blockchain. Okay. Um, so, so, like, why would somebody do that, though? Like, why would somebody... Like, I get email spam, right? Like, you have an incentive, mm-hmm. right? Like, you can either put in a virus, you can, uh, you know, like, you can... Like, if you're an attacker, right? Like, you can, yeah, you can yeah. use email to, to attack somebody. If you uh, want to get somebody to click on a link and get them to then eventually buy something from you... Maybe you send an email for that reason. But on a blockchain, like, I've heard this spam thing before um, on spe- specific to blockchains, I mean. Mm-hmm. And I don't get, like, why somebody would want to do that. Um, so, you know, just coming from, like, the traditional finance world, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you sh- initiated a short position mm-hmm. on, say, Ethereum, uh, and then you spammed the network... And the network went down that would mm-hmm. cause a lot of like fear in the market um and so you could you could profit off of it that way right um, so like a um like what's it called like a denial of service exactly attack or something. it, yeah, it yeah, is okay. a denial of service okay attack got it so basically you clog yeah. up the network so much that the real transactions can't get through so it's basically the same thing you're a malicious actor yeah you're attacking the network I mean, you could even imagine for like, uh, you know, say you wanted to mint some in-demand NFT project, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you want to get to that before everybody else does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could spam the network with a bunch of other transactions and then yeah. make sure that like your NFT transaction is the only one that can get through. So let's bring this all full circle. Getting mm-hmm. back to the very original point, right? Why does any of this exist? <laughs> Why was this thing started? The thing that broke Ethereum first before anything else was CryptoKitties. Oh. An NFT project. Oh, interesting. Ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was the minting uh, of so an NFT. So it was the minting of NFTs. I, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't say it initially because I was like, oh, let's just actually like play this whole thing out. But it was mm-hmm. actually initially CryptoKitties. Um, so, yeah, before like any DeFi stuff even existed or any of this stuff was even an issue, right? Like when you said 30 bucks to make a swap, right? Um, you know, I think like we're just already so deep in the Ethereum space where it's like, eh, 30 bucks, like, eh, I guess it's yeah. kind of cheap, right? But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, when you, it hits 30 bucks, I text people to tell yeah. them it's cheap. If you want to do anything computationally <laughs> intensive, now's the time. Right. But it's like for, uh, like set aside a sophisticated player who's, you know, doing market making, whatever, like 30 bucks is just completely out of hand, right? Like you right, can't, you can't right. operate anything serious on that. I mean, even for you and me, if you are uh, trading any other asset, really, like every other broker for any other asset class has basically sent their fees to zero. Like 30 bucks to make a trade is insane. Yeah. Um, even Bitcoin fees are not that high, right? Like, it's true. So, yeah. I mean, Bitcoin um, fees have been lower than Ethereum fees for a long time. For now. a while now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, I guess I don't know if that says more about Bitcoin or uh, <laughs> Ethereum, but um, but yeah, I mean, okay, so cool. I think like we kind of played the logic out a little bit um, on why this would need to exist. Um, yeah, so basically, think- the idea is, you know, could we architect this in a way where like we don't have to raise gas prices absurdly every time people want to like take an action on the blockchain can we make it more scalable Mm -hmm. uh people in crypto they talk a lot about you know onboarding the next billion users yeah uh and you know there's definitely not a billion users out there Mm -hmm. that would want to spend 30 dollars on a on a swap right like they're you know i mean um, they just can't 
Yeah, yeah. Most people can't, right? Yeah. Like, uh, um, if you're trading a hundred bucks at a time, like that eats away at your capital really quickly. Yeah. yeah, Um, yeah. Um, So you know, and like to begin with, a lot of people are like, "Why? Why do I need crypto at all?" Yeah, Uh, I was gonna say, like, you know, what are we onboarding the next billion people to? Right, like the technique. (laughs) Right, like this is infrastructure tech for the most part. Like, you know, Avalanche is it's really like core infrastructure that can enable a lot of other stuff uh you know a lot of applications on top of it the same way ethereum can Mm. um but we need to make it so that it's accessible yeah first of all it needs to actually you know do stuff uh, yeah. It needs to. It needs to work properly um, at, at a price it, that people are going to consider it worth yes. it to to you know take up some block space. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the way I think about a lot of, uh, I guess the way I think about crypto in general, the way it will get to that billion dollar billion uh, user uh, mark is when most people don't even know that it's there. Right. Um, Like it should be abstracted away. Yeah, exactly. Like whether it's for NFTs, whether it's for DeFi, uh, whether it's just for um, like uh, payments, Mm. Um, you know, I I, I don't think in the future people are really going to be thinking too much about which chain they're using or kind of what, uh, you know, what what core tech. Right. Like what infrastructure. Yeah. um, They are using, Uh, which is, I guess, the. You know, it's it's kind of the sign that you, as a technology, have like almost made it right. Like you just exist so, uh, like uh, ubiquitously in in um, in the background, right? in the background, that people don't even realize that they're using your technology. Um, the way people don't realize that they're using Swift, or that they don't realize that the way they're using uh, Linux, right? Yeah. Um, like I think. You know, you can kind of make that avalanche to Linux comparison in a way, right? Um, so, okay, we're talking now like a little bit more generally. I guess we can, you know, we've we've maybe explained why this exists. We can get into yeah. So we've laid how out, it works. Yeah, we've laid out the problem they're trying to solve here, yeah. right? Which is that um, Ethereum block space is limited, mm-hmm. which makes sending transactions expensive. Yeah, uh, which inherently limits the the scalability of the of the network. Right. It just makes the thing unusable. Yeah. Yeah. If you're an existing user, it makes it expensive. If you're a new user, it's prohibitive. It's prohibitive. Yeah. So, um, so, so the, the solution, the way that Avalanche sees it is that we need to do something about this fixed supply of box space. Right. Um, so the, the way that we spoke about it earlier, you know, there's a certain amount of demand and when demand spikes, you know, Ethereum can't scale up the supply. Uh, Avalanche is trying to solve that by scaling up the supply. Scaling up the supply of block space. Of block space. Yeah. Okay. And the way they do this is by making Avalanche more of like a platform uh, that has several separate uh, concurrent blockchains running on it. Okay. So uh, we'll we'll dig into what that means. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, and I mean, on this just on this conversation, I mean, we're assuming a base level of knowledge, right? Yeah. Um, of of kind of blockchains and uh, how they operate. Um, you know, this is a podcast about avalanche, so you know, if you if you've never heard of of what a blockchain is, like, it's gonna be hard to follow, anyways. So yeah. I think like we can assume a little bit of uh, kind of like base knowledge, but I mean, let's get into it, right? So. Uh, 
Avalanche is is uh, as a technology, um, you know, it's it's solving to do things that Ethereum cannot do, or it's solving to do things that Ethereum is very limited in doing, at least at present. Um, and so, it, in a way, is competing with Ethereum, right? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, to, to a degree, right? Okay. Uh, and like the you know the multi-chain thesis is maybe a little beyond the scope here, but. Um, you can imagine a world where Ethereum is best at some things. For example, you know, high-value NFTs, right? Uh, it's sort of already become the incumbent there, mm -hmm. and it's hard to imagine a world where, like, the Ethereum blockchain isn't the ultimate arbiter of who owns any NFT above, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in value mm -hmm. or whatever, right? Um, but there yeah. are other things that, you know, a higher capacity blockchain might be able to solve a little bit better. Okay, I guess maybe let me rephrase uh, my question, right? So, I guess it's not competing it, it, with Ethereum in a sense. Like, I'm definitely not suggesting that Ethereum won't exist or anything like that. What I mean more is that it's a comp to Ethereum. Right? Yeah, like it's you the can, right it's the right class of technology. Yeah, you can to, draw to a very clear it. parallel. Like, okay, Ethereum does these things. Avalanche does these things, and in a, in a sense, they do a lot of the same things, or maybe all of the same things, right? So, like, um, starting with just, you know, building up the tech, right? If you're trying to make something that has more block space and it has more of, like, this platform feel, right? Like, how do you do that? Like, how do you, how do you start, like, how do you even go about that, Right. Yeah, so the I guess where, um, you know, people used to make this argument with Bitcoin, uh, right? Like, why don't you just increase the block size? Hmm. Uh, right? Is that something that's possible? Like, why, why don't we just do that with Ethereum? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think I think the uh, the primary issue with just making bigger blocks is that the chain itself becomes unwieldy, right? Okay. So, for example, I'm doing like a trade on Uniswap that trade doesn't need to know anything about any like nft project for example like say i've never touched OpenSea, uh none of the nft assets that have been issued like share any part of state with uh with like my you know ape token or whatever um and so uh this is like if you if you think about like what does a validator need to do when they're like validating the next block and adding mm -hmm. it to the chain, mm -hmm. they need to double check that like all of the transactions are, are valid. So, you know, if I already spent my USDC on ApeCoin, then I obviously can't use it to buy a different coin. Um, okay. That but, makes sense. Uh, yeah. But like if um, if you mint an NFT and I buy ApeCoin, um, and then, you know, you want to mint something else, uh -huh. it, that transaction doesn't need to know anything about my ApeCoin right. um, necessarily, right? Uh, sure. And so the, the idea is, like, we can make it a little more modular, which okay. makes the overall size of the blockchain smaller, okay. which makes it so that the validators can, can actually, in a reasonable amount of time, check to make sure that each transaction you want to send is, is doable. Um, okay. So basically what you mean by that is that these types of transactions, um, let's say if it's minting an NFT versus doing a swap, or just doing a transfer, and it's between wallets that um, don't 
are, are not interacting with each other. Yeah. Right. You can split that up in a way where those blocks don't all need to know what's happening kind of outside of their purview. Yeah, if, right? there, if there's no interdependency, then okay. then it can be modular, right? Okay. Um, which anytime you modularize something, it makes it a little more efficient, a little more robust, and mm-hmm. like a lot easier to just generally keep track of the state of things. Okay. Um, and so, uh, you know, like Ethereum is a great example. Mm-hmm. Even the chain today is just massive, right? Like it takes... Yeah. It can take like a month to sync a full archival node if Mm -hmm. you want to get all of the data around all of the transactions that have ever happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's no need to get all of the data about all of the transactions that ever happened. Right. If like, you know, if I just want to like launch an NFT project, right? Yeah. All it needs to know about are people's ETH balances and the number of NFTs that have been minted. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the, the idea is to take the blockchain from this like big monolithic l- ledger mm-hmm. to a bunch of smaller, more modular ones. Okay. Um, okay. So d- yeah, does that make sense? That definitely makes sense. Um, so let's get uh, even a little bit more concrete, right? So mm-hmm. um, maybe we can give a very, very brief kind of breakdown of how this Ethereum ledger, like, or this monolithic Ethereum chain, how it adds blocks versus how, or I guess maybe we can look at it from the perspective of, of, of a validator, right? Um, you know, how is a validator going to process an Ethereum block versus if I am a validator on Avalanche, right? Am I even an aval? Uh, am I even a validator on Avalanche, or am I av- uh, or am I a validator on a smaller chain, on one of the sub chains? And um, also, like we should mention, most of this is not live, right? Like this is kind of they're about to start these like I mean they're, they're called subnets, yeah, right? Like these other blockchains, smaller or like you know sub blockchain subnets, they're not live yet. Um, so. Um, I guess let's start with that. Um, so, okay. So if you think about the, uh, the like life cycle of an Ethereum transaction, right? Okay. So you submit a transaction to send me some ETH, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm Bob and you're Alice. Yes. Um, <laughs> so you say, send Alice some, some ETH and yeah. then like you sign it with your private key, mm-hmm. uh, and then it gets broadcast to the network. Um, so in, in reality, what that means is you're sending it to some server yeah, and then that server is talking to a whole bunch of other servers Mm -hmm. uh, that are listening to the same like chatter, like gossip network. Right. Um, and then they all become aware that this transaction is something that you're trying to get through Mm -hmm. and they try to, uh, put it into the next block depending on like, you know, if you're paying like priority fees or whatever. Okay. Um, that's the fee network. Yeah. That's why gas fees go crazy. Yeah. That's so why the thing can't scale. That's basically what we're solving for here. Yeah. So because everybody's listening to the same pool of like pending transactions, the, yeah. mem- the memory pool, mm-hmm. um, they, uh, you, you basically wind up in a, in a fee auction okay. where if you want to get your transaction through quickly, you want to assign like a gas price that that's higher than all the other ones that are sitting there pending in the memory pool. Yeah. Um, 
And so, you know, every 15 seconds or so, a new block with the top like 100 or 200 or 300 transactions gets added to the end of the blockchain. Uh-huh. Um, and then the miners go in and they say, okay, well, what are the, what are the next ones that have the next highest gas fees? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so, so broadly, that's sort of the architecture of Ethereum is it's everybody competing for one resource, which is block space. Okay. Um, in Avalanche, it's a little bit different. And sorry, sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to cut you off, but real quick, uh, as of now, uh, again, Ethereum does not have validators. It has miners, right? Because Ethereum is still a proof of work blockchain. Um, it is going to shift to a proof of stake blockchain sometime this year. But right now it has miners. They function in the same way, right? Like they, they still... They still I, validate I that can, the transactions yeah. are valid. I'm using we the terms interchangeably. The term block producers, yeah, right? Yeah, block producers. Block yeah. producers, they do the same thing, but just as They a, listen for pending transactions, yeah. they package them into a block, and then they append them to the end of the blockchain. Okay. All the while cool. letting the other block producers know that here's yeah. what's happening. Perfect. Um, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Just, uh, you know... Yeah, the <laughs> so we don't get the fans, bro, coming at oh, us. Oh gosh, yeah, the the Twitter comments. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we've we've had I think one tweet uh, so far nice. that mentioned uh, that mentioned decent crypto podcast. And oh the, nice. The next hundred are all going to come from me mixing up the terminology. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, so that's sort of the the state of play in Ethereum is every user is sort of competing with every other user to try to get access to the scarce resource, which is block space. Right. Um, on Avalanche, it's a little bit different. Okay. It's broken down a little bit more modularly. Mm-hmm. So Avalanche today has actually three separate blockchains. Okay. Um, but the block producers are all aware of the state of all of them. Okay. So uh, every block producer on Avalanche has to keep track of what's going on on these three core chains. Okay. Um, and... Um on Avalanche, the block producers, Avalanche is like a, a proof of stake chain. So they are actually validators, right? Like, so these block producers mm-hmm. are validators. Yeah, um, y- you would call them validators. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, um, and so these three chains, they are, um, I guess, what are the three chains? Uh, it's not super important, but um, there are, so the first one is the X chain, the exchange chain. Okay. Um, and this one is built uh, differently, actually, from Ethereum, where like it uses like a, like a graph architecture to um, make it more efficient to do things like asset swaps or sending assets or receiving assets. Okay. Um, so if you want to send one of your friends some AVAX and mm-hmm. I want to send some of my friends some AVAX, they can actually process concurrently. Oh, they okay. do it in parallel. Yeah. So it's cheaper to do like just token or asset based stuff on, on the X chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have the, uh, and so real quick. So the X chain, um, mm-hmm. is made only to exchange, right? Like, is that, is that right? Like it can, the way, the way that I would think about it is that it's optimized for asset driven stuff, uh, for, for digital assets. Um, so, uh, creating, uh, tokens, sending tokens, swapping tokens. I see. Uh, those are, those are all like super efficient on the X chain. I see. And okay. So I'm not a a software engineer or anything like that. I don't really write much code. (laughs) (laughs) Much is an overstatement. Um, Mm -hmm. but so like, 
what what does this mean on an on a technical level? Uh, you know, in, in the sense of, are there certain functions that this chain cannot process? Right? Like, does it only do certain things? Yeah, it, it basically on- only handle, handles these okay. token driven things. Gotcha. So, like, uh, you know, it it doesn't have the capacity to like mint NFTs on this chain. Right. Uh, I don't think so, no. Okay. Um, um, it, but it definitely doesn't have the capacity to like play a blockchain game or like submit any given like smart contract. Okay. Uh, I see. To so it, can't, it can't it can't handle generalized smart contracts. Yeah. Okay. To to handle generalized contracts, you're gonna need the contract chain, the okay. C chain. Gotcha. So that's um, that's the second chain, C chain. Yeah, and this is where the vast majority of activity on on Avalanche happens today is on the C chain. Gotcha. Um, so if you if you have AVAX or are, are doing anything on AVAX, you're you're doing it on the C chain. I see. Um, and this is their EVM compatible chain, mm-hmm. um, which basically means you can write your smart contracts in the same programming language, Solidity, uh, as they use in Ethereum. So EVM is Ethereum Virtual Machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you look at other modular blockchain architectures like you know, Cosmos or um, Polkadot, right? Like everybody's got to play in this space, which is like, you know, you want the developers to be able to write their smart contracts once and then not have to fiddle around with them too much to deploy them on your blockchain. Okay. Um, and uh, just real quick, what are maybe some examples of these smart contracts? Yeah, uh, like- yeah. So, you know, most of the applications that you think of when it comes to a blockchain yeah. live in these smart contracts. Okay. So even an NFT is actually just a smart contract, right? right? A token is a smart contract, but okay. then protocols as well. So, you know, Uniswap is a smart contract, uh, mm-hmm. SushiSwap, right? Uh, and then there are clones on Avalanche, things like Trader Joe or Pangolin, similar similar setups. Aave is enabled on both Ethereum and so like on Avalanche. Everything. Yeah, everything, like literally everything, pretty much everything that is not native ETH is a smart and like or related to mining or staking yeah. is basically living in a smart contract. Any kind of logical anything, yeah. uh, almost anything you can think of is is a, is a smart contract. Right. Like so outside of just general like account balance of your ETH. Yeah. Everything is else is in a smart contract. Yeah. Okay. So um, um, so that's that's kind of the idea is. Uh, uh, you have your X chain, which is like hyper optimized for doing little things like sending and receiving tokens or, or generating a token. Right. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so that sort of solves my issue here, which is like to swap it, to do an atomic swap. I can yeah. actually do that on the X chain if I'm trying to buy ape coin or whatever. Right. Uh, okay. but then if I want to lend that ape coin out, I have to do it on the smart contracts that are deployed on the mm. C chain. Okay. I see. And is this when you say, you know, I want to do this on the exchange chain versus I want to do this on the contract chain, who is interacting with each chain? Is this like, you know, for example, is this like a decentralized exchange, like something like a Uniswap on Avalanche, you know, their equivalent is called Trader Joe. So is that like Trader Joe writing a contract that uh, interacts with the X chain or... um, yeah, like kind of how does that how does that play out, right? Like who is exactly interacting with each chain? Uh yeah, so um 
So the way to think about it now is basically as if they're just completely different blockchains. Okay. I see. Um, and so, uh, like, and you know, they have like atomic swap functionality built, but like it doesn't, it's like nobody's using it. Right. Like okay. almost all of the activity on the network is happening on the C chain. But if I, for some reason wanted to send you a little bit of some token, yeah. uh, I could first send it to the X chain and get it done there. Uh, much more quickly and easily af after it sends. So you can imagine for like payments, right? Like if mm. someday in the future, if I have an app on my smartphone that holds some USDC and I want to use it to spend some money at Starbucks, uh, I can do that much faster on the X chain than I can on the C chain. Okay. Uh, so C chain might take 10, 20 seconds. Uh, whereas on the X chain, it can happen instantly because uh, as long as I don't have any like conflicting transactions pending, I can it can process it, it in parallel with all the other X chain activity. Gotcha. Okay, so as of now, as of now, C chain's where the action's at. Okay, yeah. okay, got it. Got it's got basically it. C chain or bust right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in in theory, right? So mm -hmm. let's say, um. <clears throat> I'm just trying to think through, like, you know, why, why yeah, again, like, why, why, why does this, this thing, thing exist? exist? Why does yeah, the C chain exist? Or why does the uh, X chain why, exist? Why don't right? we cover like, the P chain super quickly? Okay, because yeah, it's yeah, very so straightforward. Okay. It just covers, like, metadata okay. about the Avalanche network. So things like, who are the validators? Uh, like, how much AVAX do they have staked? Uh, what are the available chains to begin with? Uh, all of this data is just, like, broad metadata lives on the P chain. And so, like, as a user, you never interact with that. Gotcha. Um, and let is me, that uh, just real quick? You know, it doesn't it sounds like the P chain is kind of like a self updating thing? Like, how does that exactly work? So, if you wanted to start another chain, uh, you would send a transaction on the P chain mm. that like says, "Hey, I'm starting this new chain. Here's the chain ID. Here's the you know virtual machine code that you need to run if you want to interact with it or whatever." Um, so, or if you say wanted to stake or unstake your AVAX, like that, each of those would be a transaction on the P chain. Okay. Um, cool. that it, makes it's sense. very much, you know, just a metadata layer. Yeah. yeah. Um, right, right. so let me, let me paint out like, you know, today, obviously like almost everything is happening on the C chain. Yeah. Right. But the vision, um, is I think a little bit more instructive. Okay. So the, the idea is let's say we create like a metaverse game. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and like you want to buy some land in the metaverse. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but I want to mint, mint an NFT in the metaverse. Um, we could have separate chains. Right. We could have one chain that keeps track. Of, and remember, a chain is like a ledger. Right. Uh, so we could have one ledger that keeps track of the balances that we each have of like the in-game token. Let's call it Metabucks, right? So we have our Metabucks ledger mm -hmm. that keeps track of just like how much Metabucks every mm -hmm. account has. Okay. Uh, then we have a ledger uh, just for the land, right? Uh, I, I think like most municipalities have one of these in, yeah. like, in an office somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's no reason that those two need to like know about each other, sure. right? They may need to interact at some point if you want to buy land, but like they can live as completely separate ledgers. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to check, you know, the availability of some plot of land, you can do that without having to like tangle yourself up with all of this other data around mm -hmm. like who's buying and selling what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, same thing with the NFTs, right? Like maybe that's just like a creative NFT 
ledger that shows who owns which nfts in in this metaverse yeah um well yeah Yeah, i mean in the real world art galleries don't go around asking uh what like municipalities like who owns land who owns the land right and vice versa so it's a very good analogy yeah yeah. um everybody has like a separation of concerns Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um so yeah which uh, is also just from a user's perspective it's quite nice right it's like I own this plot of land and it's nice to know that just because that's true, the municipality is not going to tell everybody in the world what else I own in another part of my life that might be completely separate. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there are uh, like privacy centered visions for this as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Where as you move assets across these blockchains, you could, you could do that in some kind of a privacy preserving way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not that, like, it's not know? explicitly okay. like part of the avalanche vision. Right. Okay. That's what I was going to ask. Is that something that they've talked about ever or uh, not, not, not really. Uh, okay. And I think that the technical challenges there are really, really large. Yeah. And yeah. like, if you, like secret network this is a big aside but the secret network is like much more of a trusted system oh is it yeah whereas like with a trustless system i still don't think we've quite engineered the right way to have like a generalized privacy conscious blockchain uh on secret network you have to trust that the validators are running some code that like you can't really validate whether or not they're doing it uh, don't so, tell the ZK podcast. <laughs> ZK is, you know, for like for some applications, like the tech is there, but it's not generalized yet. Okay. Um, but you know, you can imagine, you know, in ten, in ten years, right? Like these are these are much smaller engineering challenges than just like building out the the basic architecture of the network. And so, mm-hmm. ten twenty years, yeah, you could you could definitely have like a privacy conscious avalanche like subnet. Right. So, um, so getting back to our metaverse example, we have our ledger of like how much money is in each of our, how, many, how much meta bucks is in each of our accounts. We have our other ledger that keeps track of who owns which land. We have yet another ledger of like who owns which NFTs. So let's say, I don't know, Banksy decides that he or she is going to mint like, or is going to release like a, an NFT collection. And obviously everybody wants to mint one of those because it's going to be super cool. Yeah. Um, or at least profitable to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, you can imagine in Ethereum, this would cause a big traffic jam, right? It would cause a huge number of people submitting transactions to try to mint these things, yeah. which would drive gas fees through the roof. Mm-hmm. You, meanwhile, are just trying to buy some land, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which has nothing to do with any of this NFT stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so on Avalanche, we could have a setup where we have these three separate chains living in parallel. Mm-hmm. And so everybody doing the Banksy shenanigans can, can just submit their transactions to be validated on that chain. Mm. Um, and then meanwhile, you can execute your land purchase, uh, by referencing like the meta bucks. So, you know, the validator would see, okay, Karan wants to buy some land. Yeah. First check the meta bucks chain. Mm-hmm. Make sure he has enough meta bucks. Mm. Then check the land chain. Make sure that land is for sale. Okay. Um, if it if it works, then like send the two transactions and uh, and execute it. Gotcha. Um, okay. So let's. I think that's an instructive example. Um, let's walk through how that works from basically like every participant, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, Let's start with Banksy, actually, in this example, right? Okay, okay. <laughs> so Banksy is doing an NFT collection, 
you said that people who are trying to mint the Banksy NFT, they just deal with that chain. What what's going on with Banksy? Like, does he have to create his own blockchain to do that? And like, uh, you know, I think what like it would how? be is like an NFT centric chain uh, that, okay. Uh, okay. and he would submit a smart contract to it, the same way I that see. you do on Ethereum today for an S- NFT. Okay, so it would be more analogous to OpenSea has their own chain on Avalanche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they provide the functionality for anybody to mint or create, you know, kind of like create their or like launch a collection, right? Either using their contract, creating a custom contract, using their template or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, he would be deploying to that chain. That's uh, what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, um, but like, for example, you buy your land and maybe you want to put a house on it mm-hmm. uh, and then you want to hang your Banksy art over there. Yeah. Um, Avalanche enables like pretty much out of the box the ability for, for these chains to talk to one another. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and so, so the way you would refer to this is like, is a subnet. Okay. Um, a subnet is like a collection of... Well, the way they would explain it is a little confusing, so I'll explain it my way. Okay. Um, there we go. There we go. That's what this podcast is for. Yeah, for alpha, real, alpha real, Here exactly. we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a subnet, you would think of it as a collection of blockchains that are all validated by the same set of validators. Okay. So let's unpack that for a second. Sure. Yeah. Um, so if you in the previous example, you wanted to buy some land on the land chain, which you know, which is like the ownership is tracked by the land chain, mm-hmm. uh, using some metabucks, and the balances of those are tracked primarily on the on the metabucks chain. Yeah. Right? Uh, so the validator that is approving your transaction to buy land needs to know about both of those chains. Right, they're they're linked together in this metaverse mm-hmm. uh, subnet. Yeah, um, and so they need to be in communication with everybody that else that is adding blocks to any of these chains to know what the state is, to know that you have enough money in your MetaBucks account, and to know that that land is for sale. Yeah, um, and and so because and the reason that they need to know about both of those things is because your one account will be interacting with both of those different ledgers ledgers yes exactly right yeah yeah like your same wallet will be interacting with the land Mm -hmm. right yeah and also with what was it the other like the other nft uh, with with the metabucks with token. the metabucks right yeah, exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um so you know the way it would probably work in practice is something like you sign a transaction uh-huh. to escrow your metabucks right okay. uh, that will revert in say five minutes if like you don't get your land or if yeah. if you don't otherwise say it's good um then you that that escrow sends those metabucks to well, let's call it the land chain right uh where there's like an auction house for the land um. You swap your metabucks for the land there, so you sign you sign a second transaction, right? Uh, well, initially you would sign one just to claim the metabucks on that chain. So you sign one that says you can send these metabucks to the land chain, like state. Then on the land chain, you sign one that says 
claim the ones that I just sent over here. So it's all mm. driven. It's all event driven by you. Okay. Um, and then you sign a third one that says swap these two assets, right? Um, I see. And then send the, you know, and then the Metabucks get sent back to the Metabucks chain mm-hmm. into the account of whoever's land that was. Okay. Got it. Um, and so maybe there's some kind of escrow in the middle there so that you both sign off on okay. it. Um, or it could be like open sea where like you sign a contract in advance that has some kind of expiration date mm. on, on that contract. Okay. Um, okay. That makes sense. So, uh, well, it probably doesn't, but no, no, I mean, I think that does make sense, right? Like you are interacting with two different ledgers, um, that both maintain different sets of data. Yeah. Right. But those sets of data will need to interact because they live in the same world. Yes. In the same Um, metaverse. Yeah. And the metaverse is a great example. And, and I mean, to give it a, a real example, right? Like the very first subnet that's actually going to launch. Uh, or the first couple are going to be Kerbata, which is a game, and mm. DeFi Kingdoms, another game. And they both have their own metaverses, right, that do a bunch of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, like, that's the perfect example. Um, yeah, so uh, just to, like, tie it all back to, like, the three chains that exist today. Yeah. Um, so the way it works is, like, every validator that's so validating let's remember it's this block producer right mm-hmm. they're listening for transactions and then when they hear them they package them together into a block and add it to the chain and mm-hmm. then you know they're sort of in communication about the state of all these ledgers with all of the other uh, validators so a validator can choose whether or not it wants to be to have anything to do with this metaverse right uh it doesn't need to do it if it doesn't want to um but it has to every validator in any of these subnets like has to validate the primary three chains. So that's the X chain uh, for assets, the C chain for Ethereum smart contracts, mm-hmm. and then the P chain for metadata. Okay. So this is important because like, if you wanna get into this metaverse to begin with, um, you would probably buy some AVAX tokens on like a centralized exchange, Yeah. send them to your wallet on the C chain or the X chain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, you would maybe swap them for Metabucks. And then you would send your Metabucks to the Metaverse subnet. Okay. And it would go into that Metabucks ledger, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, the thing is, every every step of the way, you know, the right set of validators needs to know that you like, that it's okay for you to do this, right? So they need to track the state of the P chain, X chain, and C chain just to know that like the on-ramp and off-ramp is like is working so when you buy your avax initially they need to know about that so that you can swap it for metabucks and then you can bridge your metabucks over to to the uh, metaverse uh, subnet i see i see because you don't want people that don't have the avax initially to be buying your metabucks right like yeah. you can't just give away your metabucks yeah you need to make um, sure that the balance exists yeah. there okay. and so if you so, think of this like uh c chain p chain x chain mm-hmm. um you could think of them sort of as like the hub okay. uh to, to borrow the word from cosmos yeah or, or you could think of it as like the the lingua franca okay. that like every validator no matter what else they're dealing with uh-huh. they need to be aware of the state of the c chain p chain x chain okay um it's this common ground where like every validator can agree on on what those states are so that they can then use them to authorize or not authorize transactions 
you know, or validate or invalidate transactions on the other chains too. Okay. That makes sense. So are those three chains are, you know, like do they, I, I mean, I guess it's like this question might not make any sense, but are they almost like considered a subnet, right? Like of, yeah, you would, you would think of them as like the primary subnet, the primary yeah. subnet, right? Okay. But, uh, but while every other subnet is optional, mm-hmm. those are mandatory. Okay. Those are mandatory in the sense that every single validator needs to validate yeah. that. Subnet. Every single avalanche validator needs to validate these core three blockchains. Okay. Um, and uh, and as part of that, they have to stake some AVAX tokens, right? So they have a little bit of skin in the game, the way any proof of stake works. Gotcha. So this is a bit of an incentive for the uh, for the subnet developers, right? Mm-hmm. So that we know that, like, you know, if you and I launch our metaverse, uh, we can have like reasonable assurance that like the uh, validators aren't going to like start spamming our our ledgers with like yeah. crazy transactions or whatever mm-hmm. because that kind of behavior is disincentivized in in the proof of stake right so okay. because they're staking avax they have some skin in the game then we can further make them stake some metabox if we want to but this is a little bit of like uh, security that you get for free um i see and so this is a requirement that me right like let's take this real example as uh whenever uh let's say Krabata DeFi kingdoms they launch right mm-hmm. uh, any validator that is validating on that chain mm-hmm. or on that subnet right they have to be validating on avalanche yes. main subnet as well yes and is it like i don't know if this is just like a, a naming thing doesn't matter but is it like it makes sense to call each one of these things a subnet, right? Like there's going to be the DeFi Kingdom subnet, the Krabata subnet, the whatever else comes in the future, right? Yeah. So within a given subnet, uh, there can be multiple blockchains, okay. right? But but uh, but the subnet really refers to like the collection of validators that are validating all of those blockchains. Mm, okay. So that that's the way the Avalanche docs would describe it is okay. like. Uh, you know, if, if there's 10 validators that are approving, you know, all of the transactions on all of the different metaverse blockchains, uh, they would be considered like a, like a subnet, members okay. of a subnet. Right, um, right. But, it, but it's really like, uh, and the, the idea is, it really comes back to this, like, if you want these chains to like cross communicate, you need to have some way for them to like talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And so you need to have validators that are conscious of the state of every ledger within that little ecosystem Mm. within, within the subnet. Yeah. yeah, Um, yeah. And that's how you get like a a relatively secure bridge, right? Where like sending metabucks to, you know, uh, sending metabucks to the land uh, blockchain or whatever. Yeah like or to the the nft gallery um like that that can be completely trustless Mm -hmm. uh because every validator is that's aware of one of them is conscious of all of the others too Mm -hmm. um and so you can't just like print metabucks and send them to the land uh the land ledger because every validator is like hey i'm watching both of those Mm -hmm. you know uh and like you can't just like print metabucks that's you know that's not allowed in the in the rules of the protocol okay no, that makes sense. Okay. So, um, in, in each of these subnets, they will kind of define how they want to 
architect their subnet like by themselves right so like like DeFi kingdoms right like those are the only ones that actually have like docs out on like how they're going to like uh i, I mean actually even those docs aren't really out right but like <laughs> yeah, yeah. um they, they they were the first ones to get the the, the funding and so um you know dfk chain is what they're calling it like that's been announced they had the medium post yada 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 mm-hmm. um so are they you know like on the dfk chain right um are they going to like you know do they get to decide how they want to architect that you know is it going to be you know if they just want to have like one main chain that kind of Does handles all, all the transactions yeah. or if they want to have five different chains or you know like is that because, you know, that's like a situation where they do have, they literally do have NFTs, they have land, they have an actual DeFi platform on there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, are they going to kind of figure out, right? Like, so the, the, actually, actually, this is such a great example because, like, I'm really curious about this. Like, how do you think they play this, right? Because they have a, a DEX, right? Like the DeFi Kingdom's DEX is the, it's like the main DEX on uh, Harmony, Right, mm-hmm. like uh, most of the volume goes through there. Um, they they have pretty good liquidity, actually, if you look at it. Right, so like I would maybe imagine that the Dex becomes its own blockchain, right, just to handle trades. Then they have a uh, like a hero minting uh, kind of uh, functionality. Maybe that becomes its own chain or something like that. Then they have professions. Like I, I don't know. Like right? Do you do you imagine kind of is that how they would play that? Um, so I you know, th- I'm yeah. just trying to imagine. And if you want to generalize this, that makes sense too. But I'm just kind of curious. What I'm getting at here is what are the use cases of these different blockchains that one would want to create in their subnet? Yeah, I mean, it it is a good example, and like you could do it that way. The issue for these guys is they have a lot of technical debt, right, from having like done this before, but with one monolithic blockchain. Mm-hmm. And so I would be surprised to see them like substantially rearchitecture every rearchitect everything to fit into like a several blockchain design. But even just having their subnet separate from the rest of Avalanche insulates all of the aspects of DeFi kingdoms from all of the activity that's happening over on the C chain, P chain and X chain on Avalanche. Gotcha. So if people are doing something in Krabata or, or on Trader Joe or whatever, mm-hmm. people are minting standard Avalanche NFTs on the C chain. Yeah. Um, it doesn't impact your ability to play DeFi kingdoms. Yeah. The yeah. Game uh in any way uh and so you can still have like if DeFi kingdoms adds microtransactions this is going to be like super necessary right because they can't have the cost per transaction be very high yeah um and so it's that it's that layer of like separation primarily just from like all of the other apps on the network okay Uh, and then secondarily like you know if you're building out something really large like a like a full-scale city metaverse like then you'd probably want to have separate blockchains as well yeah yeah, if you have you know more than 100 people using it at a time right uh that makes a lot of sense yeah um i mean i guess you know trying to uh, you know trying to like fit this in right so i i think like subnets make sense to me Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of why you would want them, how they work. Um, I guess functionally kind of moving into, 
you know, I guess like how this stuff is built out. You know, if you want to move to maybe like the validator side now, um, you know, we don't need to go like too deep into consensus or anything like that. But like, how how do these subnets all actually like produce blocks? Like, how 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 do they function? Right? Like, yeah, um, it's uh, I mean, it's it's actually pretty different from something like Ethereum when you get okay. into like the nuts and bolts. Yeah. Um. So. On Ethereum, uh, and I'm, I'm like, let's let's talk about like proof of stake Ethereum, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Because it's a much closer comparison. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and hopefully, yeah, yeah. Well, let's yeah. not talk about proof of work. That's like a whole different thing. Yeah. So yeah. we'll just, yeah, <laughs> what they said. <laughs> so, um, so on proof of stake Ethereum, basically every like slot, uh, I think they call them, you have a, a leader, right? Um, and so this is chosen sort of pseudo randomly, but it's basically like the more ether you stake, uh, the more likely you are to be chosen as the leader to produce the next block. Okay. Um, and so everybody's listening to like the pool of like pending transactions, Mm -hmm. uh, but only the leader gets to actually like package them into a block and like receive that like block reward. Um, so, uh, in Avalanche, initially, actually, it was completely leaderless, which is pretty interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So it was anybody that had staked 2,000 AVAX or more could like uh, could be the one to propose the next block. Okay. Um, and they ran into issues here, right? Because if you imagine like a scenario where there's arbitrage, mm-hmm. every uh, everyone, every validator, uh, is going to try to like sneak in a transaction where they collect that arbitrage and then propose that as the next block. Yeah. Um, and so the way that avalanche comes to a consensus is each of the block proposers talks to one another and they do this in turns, right? So like, say you're a block proposer, uh, you're like, hey, like, I think I have a block ready to go. Okay. Sh- you show it to everyone surrounding you, like mm-hmm. your 10 nearest neighbors in, in the in the graph, right? Uh, you turn to all of them, you say, what do you guys think? Is this like, is this what you guys see uh, as the next block? Is this your, your state of the world? Uh, and they say either yes or no. And if they say no, they'll tell you what, what they see. And, um, and then if you find that a majority of people uh, agree on a different block, then you will flip and start supporting that block too. Okay. So they call this a super majority. Um, and, and so the idea is it's, uh, it goes in rounds until all of the block proposers converge on what the next block actually is going to be. Okay. It's a little bit like voting, right? Uh, except that the vote is not everyone voting for what they think every single time. It's like one instance of that. And then, uh, if you see the majority of people around you are voting on something differently, you'll change to that. Okay. Uh, and then you do it again and again until you reach convergence. Mm. In practice, this is super fast, right? So, um, so Avalanche, they talk a lot about sub-second finality. Yes, yes. Um, so l- let's let's uh, unpack that just super quickly. Yeah. So this yeah, because, like... I mean, whenever I do my trades, it's <laughs> like, yo, man, it's been more than one second. What's going on over here? <laughs> I heard this is a sub-second finality on the Avalanche. I put in my transaction like four seconds ago on Trader Joe. It's still not through. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so yeah, what exactly are we talking about here? 
Uh, yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny because remember the, uh, do you remember that guy that was tweeting at Comcast? Like, uh, automatically he had built that thing where every time his internet speed dropped below the rate they were charging him for, he tweeted at them. Oh, no way. He set up That's a bot brilliant. to do it. Yeah. That's this is so what we good. should do with the Avalanche yes. team. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Tweet straight at Amin. <laughs> hey brother it's been more than one second <laughs> like a second is a really low bar right <laughs> yeah um so so here's what here's how the flow works you submit a transaction right and it's sitting in the memory pool uh until people sort of agree on this thing um but basically once your transaction makes it out of that memory pool out of that queue mm-hmm. and it's into one of these potential next blocks mm-hmm. uh then from there, it takes less than a second for the network to come to an agreement as to what happened. So if you think about blockchains, they're just a, a consensus on what transactions happened and in what order. Um, and so this is just like once someone has some idea for what those transactions are yeah. and in what order, uh, how quickly is that uh, like consensus reached amongst okay. the network participants? So that's really it. It doesn't mean that uh the transaction has settled on the network um so it's it's a little bit settlement related uh okay. like once they come to that agreement it's basically settled um so it's one and the same thing really it's like uh you know you can have this with bitcoin right like if two miners come to the same come to like differing conclusions about mm-hmm. what happened mm-hmm. then the network kind of just has to vote on mm-hmm. what they think right yeah uh but like longest chain yeah and then you just go with that yeah well so imagine that there's like uh two miners that get conflicting results right and yeah. so now they're at equal lengths of the mm-hmm. blockchain um the next block that gets produced that's really the one that establishes the yeah, longest exactly. chain right mm-hmm. uh and that takes a while right it mm-hmm. can take it i think in bitcoin it takes about 10 minutes right yeah um on avalanche this gets like settled within supposedly less than a second one second in practice i think it's closer to two okay okay. uh so Um, but it's still fast and the thing is that it scales well the this like talk to your nearest neighbors algorithm it scales super super well so uh like on cosmos there's a limit of 150 validators because their like cross validator communication mechanism is way less efficient than it's not as scalable um, and so in, in computer science, you have this notion of like scalability as a function of like, you have some number that grows and as it grows, like does the time that it takes to process grow exponentially or linearly or what? Yeah. Um, and so in cosmos, uh, it grows very poorly, uh, and it, it basically makes it impossible to have anything more than 150 validators. Mm. Uh, whereas like in theory avalanche, you can have tens of thousands or if not millions, um, I did not know that. Yeah, so uh, so that's sort of the consensus mechanism. It, the, they talk a lot about this as their like core piece of like super innovative tech, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of like I see a thing. Do you see that same thing? And if so, then like we're good. Uh, and if not, then like well, who has more support? Oh, I'll just flip to that. Uh, so this is really primarily communication, like you know, like basic basic infrastructure. Uh, plus a little bit of like, if we have a conflict, like how do we resolve it? Okay. Um, does that make sense? I, it does make sense. Yeah. Um, my question on top of that is back to my original question. When I make the transaction on Trader Joe, why does it take like five seconds to like display in my wallet? Is that just like a act, you know, like it's conf- 
it's settled on the blockchain first, but you know, it's just like a wallet thing. Uh, n- well, yeah. So there's probably some degree of like when you submit that transaction, it goes to one validator, right? Mm. And then like news of that transaction has to spread uh, mm. to the rest of the network, right? Uh, so that like more and more can like work it into their potential next block. And an avalanche for for what it's worth, like abandoned this like leaderless thing uh and now they're, they're going with a very similar approach to to ethereum which is funny after all of the like shit that like i mean has been talking about mm-hmm. about ethereum proof of stake and how it's never going to work yeah and in reality they had this issue uh and then they were like well i guess we'll just have a leader now um uh-huh. and so every block there's a leader and the, and the leader gets five seconds to to approve or to like propose a new block and then if they don't get it done, then there's like, you know, five or 10 more that, that get selected as like the next leader down. Uh, and if none of them does it, then everyone in the network, can, anyone in the network can propose a block. Okay. So you need that transaction that you sent to some, some node somewhere to propagate itself to whoever the leader is of the current block. Uh, and so that can take a little time depending on networking and like Mm -hmm. how well set up everybody is and like maybe you're in one part of the world and the leader's in a different one or the internet's a little slow or whatever. Okay. So you may not be getting into the next block after you hit, you know, transact, Mm. uh, because it may just not reach in time. Mm. Um, and then from there, uh, it can also be like, maybe you're paying a slightly lower fee than like some other people. Right. Uh, and so, you know, you get in, but maybe not in the next one, maybe you get into like the third block or the fourth block after you hit send just because you're like paying a slightly lower network fee. I see. Interesting. So there's still like a fee network, you know? Okay. Okay. It's just that like, you know, there's still supply and demand, but it's just supply is greater when you have more blockchains. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so you mentioned networking, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a just general question I have on proof of stake, Mm -hmm. but like, how does the proof of like any proof of stake blockchain, right? Like how does the act, like the block production actually work, right? Like, you know, with Ethereum, it's 32 ETH that you need, right? To, uh, that you need to stake to become a validator, right? At the minimum, mm-hmm. with uh, Avalanche, it's you need two thousand AVAX, right? Yeah. But it's not like I can just open up my MetaMask, be like, oh, I have two thousand AVAX in here, and just be a validator, right? Like there needs to be some, like there needs to be a computer that does, <laughs> like literally there does run, need to be a computer, yeah, right? Like that, that like runs the blockchain, and it actually validates transactions, right? Like it runs the software. It takes it like reads transactions coming in from other people. It connects to other validators, um, you know, like on a hardware level, right? Like I know these proof of stake blockchains, they've reduced the requirement. Well, not Solana. Solana goes the other way uh, where it increases the hardware requirements. But most of these other ones, they have pretty low hardware requirements from what I understand. So like, how does that work? It's not like I can just be a validator if I have 2,000 uh, AVAX, like I, you know, like I have to run some other software. I have to, um, you know, like connect to other nodes. Like how does that part work? Uh, yeah. So let's say you're starting a validator. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, let's say you want to do it on your laptop because why not? Um, mm-hmm. So uh, could we do that? We could absolutely okay. start a validator right now on your laptop. Maybe, laptop maybe we'll we do like a Twitch session later yeah, where yeah, we do exactly. it. Um, so, uh, uh, 
what we would do is we would generate a private key mm-hmm. um, that we're going to use just for this, right? Okay. Uh, we would, new wallet, basically. Uh, yeah, new wallet. It's like just best practice, right? Yeah. Uh, then we send our 32 ETH to that wallet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, well, I mean, I'm less familiar with ETH because it's not live yet, but yeah, yeah. on AVAX, the way it would work is... Um, you go into you go onto this uh, the website really, mm-hmm. uh, and you say like avalanche dot network. Yeah, avax dot network. There's yeah, there's, the, network, there's yeah. the plug. Yeah, um, there we go. So uh, <laughs> so you go on avax dot network slash stakers or staking, uh-huh. um, and uh, and you click I want to register a validator. Okay. Uh, you say here's the public key for the validator that uh, that I want to register, and then you sign a transaction and it gets sent to the P chain. Remember, this is the yes. one that keeps track of all the metadata. Right. So you send you send a transaction to P chain like through MetaMask or or the command line. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you say, "Yep, sign me up. I'm I'm staking now." Gotcha. Uh, so then then what happens? Uh, first things first is your computer needs a copy of the blockchain. Yes. Right. So um, the way this works in like even in Bitcoin, right, mm-hmm. uh, is there's a list of like servers that are just known to be like running good copies of the blockchain okay uh on bitcoin the issue is you kind of like if somebody had some malicious copy of the blockchain they could they could try to propagate it Mm -hmm. on avalanche the way it works is you query several uh like servers that have full archival copies of the blockchain uh so and in their vision of the world these are run by exchanges and like people that have like skin in the game right Mm -hmm. so Coinbase isn't going to feed you a malicious copy of the AVAX blockchain. Yeah. It would be super detrimental to their, to their bottom line, mm-hmm. uh, because everyone would lose, you know, faith in the network. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you would download copies of the blockchain from say Coinbase, FTX, the Avalanche, you know, Ava labs, uh, Vitalik, whoever you trust, yeah. and you get a like, copy of it that way. Yeah. And there's like also trusted ways to do this, right? There's like people who like when you're downloading the actual file, they will like sign uh, with like a, uh, what's it called? Like a, you know, like a, like a PGP. Hmm. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. I, I could, uh, I mean, I could imagine cryptography would play a role here. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, I but mean, a lot of, a lot of the core parts of every modern blockchain are sort of based around, you know, there's hashes everywhere. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, uh, and yeah. so if you, if you can validate a hash, like, which is pretty fast, like it's pretty easy to, to verify that like the mm-hmm. data that you have matches it at least. Yeah. Um, so, um, so you download this copy of the blockchain, right? And then your computer would be constantly listening the way that like an email server listens for new emails getting sent to it, right? Okay. It would be constantly or like the way that like your computer is constantly listening to Slack mm. to to get a new message from a coworker. Mm. Uh, your computer is now constantly listen, listening for two things. Uh, the first thing is uh, new transactions, right? Okay. It's listening on the memory pool, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, these the mem- are the pool. pending transactions. Yeah. Uh, for you know, so when I submit some trade on on Trader Joe, and I'm like, "What the fuck? It's taking so long." Yeah. Uh, the first thing that happens is like it gets sent to some computer somewhere. Okay. Uh, and then that computer is likely in a data center, and it's like run by Infura or whoever, like some some professional cloud services company. Yeah. Uh, and then that needs to get propagated out to your computer and every other computer mm. in a peer to peer manner. So this all uses like lib P to P under the hood, right? Okay. Um, this like peer to peer networking uh, standard. Gotcha. Um, so then, uh, 
then your computer so your computer listens for like pending transactions right okay it i guess listening for two more things it's listening for any new blocks right and when it sees a new block it turns to its neighbors and says yo do you guys see a matching block Mm -hmm. uh and if the neighbors say yeah yeah this is this is the block that i see for the next block then like you're good and and you might get pulled sometimes from some of your neighbors who will be like hey do you see this block and you'll be like yeah yeah i see a matching block or you'll be like no and then then you figure it out like whoever the majority is wins right um Mm -hmm. uh and so that that's the part that happens within the span of two seconds right uh yeah uh and then uh uh and then it's also listening for a third thing which is like yo it's your turn uh, mm. it's your turn to be the one to propose the next block. Okay. At which point you take all of those messages you were listening for in the first place and you say, oh, okay, these are the transactions in the mempool. Uh, I'm going to order them in order of like descending fees paid or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and package them into a block and propose that to all my neighbors is like, uh, Hey, I'm the leader. Here's my new block. Okay. Tell, tell your friends. Right. Uh, and then they'll be like, Oh, I hadn't seen a new block yet. So I guess this is the right one. What do you guys think? Do you see? And then it'll, it'll get propagated. I see. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but you do have to have your computer on and running. Right. right? Uh, and so yes. in avalanche, you don't get penalized for like downtime. Uh, but in Ethereum, you do, right? Mm. So uh, okay. on Avalanche, you just don't earn any like yield on it, right? You don't earn your staking reward if you're not like a good participant in the network. Mm. Um, you you earn you earn it from a proposing new blocks when it's your turn, and b from having from being there to say to confirm to the neighbors, yeah, I see what you see, or no, I see something different. Uh, so all all of this is like an important. Uh, thing if you want to be a staker and earn your staking rewards. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's super interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. Uh, let's. How are we see. feeling about the technicals? Are we are we burned yeah, out? Yeah, I was gonna say like I. I mean that makes a lot of sense to me. Like I feel like I have a way better understanding than before. Just you know, both on how this compares contrasts to Ethereum you know, how it's going to try and address the issues that have come up in the past that we're seeing still. You know, the NFT mints, a lot of these drops are still kind of leading to network congestion. Fees are still high. It's still prohibitive for a lot of new users, especially non-US users, you know, people in smaller nations to get involved. So, uh, yeah, like cost-wise, it makes sense. Um I guess just the very final thing to touch on is just, you know, you'd mentioned before kind of the the validators that are going to come in on these subnets, right? Mm-hmm. They need to also be validating on the main chain. Yes. So kind of just, you know, how does that work? Um, you know, like what is required on their end? Um, and... Uh, yeah, is there anything else that like, you know, maybe you want to touch on on that point? Uh yeah, so, you know, just just taking a step back and like remember why this needs to happen, right? So, if you want to confirm that someone owns some metabucks and that they get to spend them on your chain, then you need to have like knowledge of both uh of both of the states of all of the blockchains involved, 
right? So this main chain sort of acts as the one that everyone has knowledge of it. Everyone knows what the ledger looks like over there uh, in the, in, sorry, in the, in the three main chains, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that enables you to trustlessly, you know, approve transactions on other chains that, that touch these chains. Mm. So whenever someone wants to send something from one blockchain to another, um, they either need to have a native way of communicating or there's a point of trust, which can act as a point of failure. Yeah. So if you look at like bridge hacks in the past, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, wormhole, uh, mm-hmm. like that, that was an issue because it was a bridge between Ethereum and Solana, mm-hmm. which didn't have any native cross chain communication. Okay. So it was a trusted bridge, yes. right? Like in the, the sense that like Solana and Ethereum, both as networks don't really have a way to actually communicate to each other in in any way really like, yeah there's there's like, no way for them that. to verify anything yes, exactly right? you can't say like this is a wallet that exists on ethereum and it's a matching wallet on solana that has a balance that's shared at all right yeah like, there's there, no way. there is there is no cross-chain communication yeah. the networks at all just cannot communicate at all yeah right? and okay. so you have to trust a bridge operator to like take some of your assets on one and mint up new assets for you on the other and this can be an issue because maybe the bridge just doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? Maybe the like bridge is down. Maybe the bridge gets hacked. Yes. Like there, there's lots of ways that that can fail. Yeah, like historically, this was just exchanges, centralized exchanges. Yeah, like FTX was basically a bridge from Solana to Ethereum. Yeah, it still is. It probably still is the best bridge. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't. Know. I use Coinbase. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, not uh. financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like. Um, yeah, but then you're trusting FTX, you're trusting Coinbase, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and that's why a wormhole got was created, right? Like, why does wormhole exist? Because people did not want to trust the centralized exchanges; they wanted to have a. Uh, they trust instead wanted to less, trust yeah, some they, other thing. They wanted to right? trust cr- jump crypto instead. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and so you know, it's a little bit like it's a it's a little bit hard to see a world where like this is really a viable like. If you're a whale, if you're yeah. like, if you have any like sizable amount of money invested in the space, mm-hmm. like if you're like me and you're like starting a fund, right? Like yeah. I could never entrust client funds to a bridge mm-hmm. uh, that that doesn't exist natively in the protocol. Yeah. Whereas on Avalanche, I could because it's trustless because the different validators have that knowledge of the state of each of the blockchains that they're responsible for. Mm. So I know that. No one's going to be able to print up metabucks uh, that don't exist on the on the X chain or the C chain or whatever, right? Uh, because a validator won't let that happen because the validator knows the state of all of the chains that they're responsible for. Gotcha. So this is kind of a crucial part of the architecture, right? Is that like everyone needs to have some shared hub yes. where they can where they can agree that like those are going to be like reference ledgers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the end, the, the the way this is different from the Solana Ethereum example we just gave is that they are not separate blockchains, right? They're still tied together in some way. Yeah, right? so they're separate ledgers and blockchains, mm-hmm. but they are tied together in a protocol. Yes, right? um, okay. And yeah, that's a great distinction to make. Yeah, and and they t- and they speak natively to each okay. other is the big thing. Mm. Um, and so it's kind of like the only way, personally, I think that this works. Okay. Like if DeFi Kingdoms tried to spin up their own blockchain with their own set of validators that wasn't under an umbrella like AVAX, yeah, um, 
then like how could you ever trust it right like you would send your eth to some address that's controlled by the DeFi kingdoms team and then they would promise that they're gonna print up some DeFi kingdoms eth for you on the other end of this right uh which is the way that bridges work today right it's trusted they Mm -hmm. can tell you that under the hood there's 80 different parties and you need a seven eighths majority of any transaction to like you know claim it or like but in reality this is a point of trust right uh and uh and it's hard to it's hard to trust a bridge if you're not the one operating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to trust a bridge if it's not natively part of the protocol. Yes. Um, and so that's where the advantage for being on Avalanche kicks in for them, is that they can have their own block space, right? The way they would on their own blockchain. Mm-hmm. They can have their own native token the way they would have on their own blockchain. Uh huh. Um, they can whitelist or I guess allow list or deny list any of the any of the validators that they care up to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have all of these, all of the advantages that they would have from a, from a separate blockchain, but with higher security guarantees and that's going to drive like more people to use it. If they can trust that, like when they send some whatever token to the DeFi kingdoms chain, that it's going to work. The problem is that like running an avalanche validator is expensive. Okay. Not from a compute standpoint. Like we could do it on your laptop yes. and it wouldn't like, it wouldn't like wreck it or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the bigger issue is that uh, you need to like stake some, some AVAX, right? You need skin in the game. It caught, you know, so on ETH, it's a minimum of 32 ETH mm-hmm. uh, on AVAX. It's a minimum of 2000 AVAX, which okay. as of t- at 80 bucks an AVAX, it's like 160 grand. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like too much for a lot of, uh, you know, like anonymous DeFi, DeFi kingdoms or like pseudonymous developers or whoever wants to like innovate yeah. to yeah, ask like, them to bring 160K per validator. And then Avalanche recommends five at least validators per, you know, that you have at least five validators for, for your subnet, right? Per chain. Yeah. Per subnet. Yeah. yeah um, which I think is like a pretty reasonable, uh, like minimum, mm-hmm. right? Uh, oh yeah. I- ideally it's as decentralized as possible. I mean, yeah, you want um, dozens, hundreds, right? Yeah. But... That's, that's the whole point of all of this, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. So yeah. why does any, why of, this does any of this exist? It's yeah. for the decentralized aspect. Yes. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's why, uh, Ava Labs um, has like recently announced their their big subnet incentivization program, mm-hmm. yes. which will pay, uh, which will basically subsidize the validator startup cost for any team that wants to build a subnet. Right. So um, they did. So they announced Avalanche Launch, I think it's called, <laughs> um, and they just gave the first one they announced was two DeFi kingdoms. They gave them fifteen million dollars. Um, I don't know if they've announced officially like what they're going to do with the money, but I would assume, yes, like you said, a lot of this is to also get more validators for their chain and for those validators to pay for, to like buy AVAX and to, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the way the that, the way that I interpreted it was that, um, it was earmarked specifically for the AVAX for the validators. Like it's not to pay for like developer incentives or anything. Like it's like it's specific. There's a specific um, fund that they've uh, released that that is just for acquiring validators. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so uh, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see if they like um, 
change their strategy there at any point to mm. incentivize existing validators because you know right now if they give them 15 million dollars they're going to buy up a bunch of avax which is i guess good for the token price uh, yeah and then they're going to operate their own validators but then those validators are kind of like just overseen by the DeFi kingdoms team mm-hmm. you got to think it's like a little more anti-fragile if you have like all of the other validators mm-hmm. on Avalanche that care to participate in yeah. validating DeFi kingdoms to, to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you may see them rework that model a little bit. Um, but okay. my understanding was that it was, it was actually just earmarked for validators. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, okay. Because uh, it's, I, I think the total, I forget what the total dollar amount was, but they actually have it's in total. They, they've set aside funds to, either like acquire or maybe they just have in their in their safe uh four million avax is mm. the like maximum wow um yeah which yeah big, i great. think the uh total number of this incentive program was 290 million us yeah it sounds like um, yeah so four million avax 80 bucks like yeah 320 yeah um, yeah Depen- about, depending yeah. on the day i, yeah, I don't remember when they the announced day, it depending yeah. on the second um so yeah okay um, awesome like so from a tech perspective, I feel like way more comfortable. Um, I feel like a lot of this is making sense on how they're going to accomplish uh, the mission here or kind of, you know, solve the problem. Should we give a, um, like a super quick recap of just, like, yeah, I was going to say the, like, what's the core problem? Right. So real it's quick, real pop, quick pop quiz. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, real quick, real quick. We'll, we'll do a full like recap on from the, from the tech perspective, kind of run through everything we talked about, but like, is there anything else that you want to touch that we haven't really dug in on? Um, or any other like tidbits on, <laughs> you know, from like a tech perspective, anything you found like particularly cool or interesting? I know, because, like, just generally, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, you're pretty bullish on this idea, at least, of of kind of, like, modular uh, blockchains and the way they're approaching it. Um, so, yeah, just kind of, like, what's your takeaway? Is there anything you find particularly cool, interesting, anything like that? Well, so, like, one interesting side note that I would, like, definitely flag, right, is when you look into, like, how do I get a subnet going on Avalanche, mm-hmm. the documentation's really good. Okay. They walk you through pretty neatly, like, how to get it done. Yeah. Um, they have, like, code samples and links to the GitHub all over the place. When you try to figure out how to, and, and then, you know, when you're trying to figure out how to get validators, they have a fun set up. They're like, mm-hmm. get in touch with our developers, you know, like we can help hook up the, you know, 4 million AVAX or whatever. Yeah. Um, when you look into Cosmos, none of that is there. Mm. So they have like a tutorial on like, here's how you, in theory, launch like a Cosmos, like subnet equivalent, a Cosmos yeah. zone. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, they don't really give you any info on like how do I get in touch with validators to see if like you know anyone would be willing to validate my chain. Yeah, yeah. They don't they don't subsidize if you're trying to because kind of they can't because there's only 150. Mm. Uh, so they have to kick someone else out, but they they can't subsidize developers if you know who want to create a new validator to like validate their chain, right? Mm. Um and uh you know like Avalanche is like has like addressed you know they they're trying to make a a market basically where 
subnet developers can get in touch with potential validators. Um, and so they're launching like a communication platform or whatever, like, you know, in the docs, it says stay tuned, but like, we're actively working on this on cosmos. There's nothing. There's like a press release about how this is all going to work great. And like people will stake Atom and then validate the cosmos zones. But like in reality, you know, it's very, very unclear what the next step is there. Avalanche, it feels like they're actually making progress mm. and, and they just go about the whole thing in a much more professional manner. Okay. So, you know, their business development team is like super strong. They yeah. Have, I was going to say like, like, you know, Ava Labs has done a killer job on the BD side uh, for sure. Uh, you know, they've got like just, I, I mean, their investors help a lot also. Like Suzu yeah. is constantly tweeting about Avalanche, but um, they do a really good job on that side, which to me... You know, like I mention this all the time, but it's like after a certain point, the technology is less important. You, you know, like I, it's a, it's a whole different uh, debate or it's a whole different really conversation. But it's like I'm sure for and we're going to talk about this, but like a lot of the use cases that Avalanche is going for, you could do the same stuff with Phantom or with Near or with whatever else, right? Like. In the end, like we care about just a few of these things. Like we care about the fact that it's decentralized, the fact that it's fast, the fact that it's uh, usable, like cheap, right? Um, beyond that, it, it doesn't really matter, right? Like if the blocks are produced, that's what we care about, and 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 those traits are held. That's what we care about. Yeah. But they've done a great job of attracting developers, and they've really emphasized that uh, they rack up tvl um by by <laughs> incentivizing it and by getting people to build um and you know like a lot of the stuff is copy paste right like initially at least but yeah um, i mean literally they're using the ethereum virtual machine on the c chain yeah it's like you know exactly couldn't be more copy paste than that um, yeah um but yeah definitely developer relations and and i guess just biz dev from a biz dev perspective too right mm -hmm. like they've got you know ads running on the new york city subway yeah yeah that's crazy nuts, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um they've got you know uh they've got like deloitte they've got some partnership with them they mm -hmm. you know they've got our man Emin going on all the podcasts, sort yeah. of like being the cringiest person in crypto, in my Easy, opinion. Easily the cringiest guy in crypto. Which is um, like, this is crypto. It's okay, hard to do that. Forget. Man. Yeah. It's hard to do that. Um, <laughs> he's like cringe because he like doubles down on all his takes. Actually, I can't say that. Like, Syph Dean is pretty bad, man. He's oh, also equally. He's still cringe. around? He is still around. He's <laughs> now putting out new books. Uh, oh, his nice. latest book is called The Fiat Standard. The fiat standard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, cool. Like, yeah, let's uh, real quick just kind of wrap on the technical stuff and then go into like again, like why does this exist? Like, what are use, the cases? use cases? Here, great, great. Right. Um, um, okay, technical wrap real quick. What do yes, you think? Okay, yeah. so um, all right. So let me try and give my normie take here. Let's right? do it. Let's hear it. Right. Okay. So. Let's start at the beginning. So, um, on the first day, there was Vitalik. Uh, <laughs> no, um, okay. So, Ethereum running into problems around scaling. The blockchain is getting very expensive. It's getting very crowded as uh, some of these gas-intensive operations uh, build up, uh, namely NFTs, right? So like CryptoKitties was, was a big one. So to solve this avalanche, what they do, they 
open up more block space by having more blockchains, right? Not everything happens on the same blockchain. You can break up certain types of transactions into different blockchains. You can break up different uh, operations, different applications into their own blockchains. Um, each of those blockchains will have their own validator sets, but those validators also need to be validating the main Avalanche blockchain because they need to know what's going on on the other chains so they can't have you know, any kind of fraud or any kind of duplicate assets on their own chain. Um, that opens up block space across all of these chains to perform whatever transactions they want to perform without clogging up the other chains. And, you know, whatever development groups can decide to architect those chains however they want to. Those chains are all called subnets. Uh, Avalanche has a bunch of GigaChat investors that is pumping tons of money into incentivizing a lot of these developers and building apps on it. And uh, we will probably see a lot of these subnets launch this year. Yeah, I think Kevin Seknicki said it was going to be February, uh, but I guess... All right, uh, well, I think their their grant program was launched in February. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, I've heard that um, the DFK subnet is going to go live next month. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that sounds, we'll that that sounds reasonable. Yeah. yeah. Um, Should cool. we jump so into like, use cases yeah, real quick? So let's go into the use cases, right? So, like, the first couple use cases are, like, the actual use cases that they announced are games. And you mentioned metaverses as well. Um, like, yeah, why would anybody use a subnet? Um, you know? Um, so, uh, so, you know, to build on your point that, like, the developers can build any way they want, um, if you wanted a proof-of-stake Bitcoin... Right, you could actually implement that from scratch on uh, on an avalanche subnet um, and have everything work the same way. So the UTXO model, the same way that Bitcoin does it, you can implement that as a subnet. So there's there's nothing saying that like these need to support whatever smart contracting so language or whatever like EVM. No, uh, it just has ah. to fit into the avalanche subnet API, which is pretty like pretty straightforward. Right. Um, I see. And then depending on like what, you know, what you want to hook it into, then it needs to be interoperable with that. Mm. Uh, but you know, you can do uh, a Solana subnet where you have a Solana virtual machine and so anybody that wants to write smart contracts in Rust could submit it to, to okay. the Solana subnet okay, and have I that see. natively interoperable with the Avalanche, you know, main blockchains. Mm. And with that, I mean, I, I would imagine, right, like if you're trying to replicate Solana on top of Avalanche, like it's not going to be an easy thing to do, right? Like it's yeah. going to be pretty hard. So um, it, it is going to be pretty hard, um, but I would say that like the main hurdle there is actually in uh, the validators, right? So huh. a Solana validator, it's like 20, 30 grand in equipment just oh, yeah. to like set up the server. Uh, they use like super high-end GPUs with like a ton of compute power. Um, that's why it's so blazing fast, mm -hmm. right? Um, so one of the big things that... Uh, the, the avalanche like you know developer evangelist people talk a lot about is like you can have permissioned validator sets okay so you can say when you set up your subnet you can flag hey I only want to let these validators 
uh, validate the blockchain. I see. You don't have to open it up for everyone. Okay. Um, and so, uh, you know, the the use case that they that they keep like pointing out is that like basically you could make a private blockchain if you yeah. wanted to that would be interoperable then with the Avalanche main chain. Um, it's a little bit. So unclear. you can have Ripple on Avalanche. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so okay, here's the thing, right? It's just the validator set, right? Yeah. Like it's still unclear to me. Like having read pretty thoroughly through the docs how on earth you would limit the users, right? Uh, but I guess if the validator set is limited, they don't have to listen for transactions from just anyone. They could they could permission it on their side, I guess. Um, but like the use case that they keep pointing out is like, say you wanted to, you know, Avalanche, they say their mission is to like create digital asset versions of everything, to digitize every asset, right? Um, is sort of like the broad ethos. Okay. Um, so if you wanted to digitize uh, a stock, like Apple stock, mm -hmm. um, you would need to like register with the SEC. You would need to make sure that like now you're now you're like a security provider uh, or like a broker. Uh, and so you need to like conform with like KYC and, and AML standards. Right. Yes. Um, and so uh, and so they they point out like we are going to live in a world where like a lot of assets live on the blockchain. Um, so we should grow the capacity to have these sorts of like flexible subnets where we can architect it so that like you do have to pass KYC in order to participate. Mm, I see. So they're kind of, if you, if I was to like kind of blow that vision out, they would, they're basically like, you know, maybe we live in a world in the future where there is like a joint, uh, let's say identity registry between like three or four different countries, let's say, or three or four different municipalities, right? That say like, oh, you know, you're like a registered, not a citizen, but like, you know, you're like a registered, uh, whatever, sex offender <laughs> in like <laughs> these four places. Like, right? Like basically it's like a shared identity, right? Between these four places. And only those four groups are validators that say that like this person has like let's say like a passport or like a visa system right like a visa system between like 10 or 15 different countries something like that that says like you know this is like a validated individual with this kyc wallet whatever mm -hmm. that is like proving that they are able to be here whatever the case may be yeah, yeah. I mean, you could think of uh, the Eurozone, right? Where yes. uh, maybe to like get through, you know, the in the EU, you can walk through the express lane with like a physical, you know, ID, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when can you get you? when you get to the airport or the train station or whatever, okay. right? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you know, okay, if you okay, if you land from the U.S. in any European country, if yep. you're a European citizen, you can just walk through the express lane. Yes. Uh, so you could imagine a digital form of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, where you prove that, like, yeah, I'm a member of some European Union state, uh, and so I get to go through your express lane at the airport. Uh, or um, you know, going back to your Ripple example, right? Like, or like Swift, right? Like, mm -hmm. this could be a platform for Swift where yeah. you have like banks yeah, are the banks. only permitted validators, so they're the only ones that get to propose new blocks, right? Yeah. Um, like Zelle, right? Have you used Zelle? Like uh, the yeah, thing? the banking yeah. Uh, Venmo, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. It's like that could be just like a private subnet. It right? could be, yeah. Like between banks. It's just like a shared database yeah. at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and so you have this like uh, transparency that you get with a blockchain where like all of the, you know, like provenance of assets can be like fully traced. Uh, 
but in like a permissioned way, whereas like banks today really couldn't use like Ethereum mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the clients wouldn't want them to. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so those are kind of like the, the broad use cases is like flexibility, right. Uh, as well as like data intensive stuff, like a metaverse, right. Mm-hmm. Like if you tried to have a fully functioning, like metaverse, like city equivalent running on Ethereum, you know, think of the number of transactions that happen on a given block in New York City within mm-hmm. a five minute span. Yeah. Right. Like it couldn't even handle that. Uh, you know, let alone all of New York City, where like there's aggregate, you know, millions and millions of dollars in GDP being produced every day mm-hmm. uh, across like lots and lots of transactions. Uh, you would need to have like your own subnet to, to yeah. handle that, that right, level right. of scalability. So, okay, so that makes sense. Um, now, is there stuff that, you know, you can do on a subnet from maybe like a DeFi perspective, you know, stuff like, you know, more com- more of these like complex kind of like DeFi products or like some of these, like, like market making, right? Like market making is very hard on uh, Ethereum um, mm-hmm. because of the, because of the gas costs, um, like, you know, is that stuff that's enabled on Avalanche? Uh, is that stuff that, you know, each, like, financial application would maybe need its own subnet? Um, you know, because there's this whole thing on Solana, right, about how the uh, it's basically lightning fast. It's, like, almost free. That enables these like microtransactions. That enables, uh, you know, a layer of financial activity that you can't do on Ethereum. Is there stuff like that that you can do on Avalanche? Um, is there, you know, other stuff uh, that you couldn't do? Right, like, and then, you know, maybe this is a separate question, but from a composability perspective and like an interoperability perspective. Uh, you know, what does that look like? Because that's also an argument that a lot of Solana people use is that, you know, everything on one chain makes, makes every application composable. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I think that's a very valid criticism, right. Uh, of like, it's still pretty clunky. I mean, even to send assets between the X chain and the C chain, like it requires like two transactions. Right. Okay. Um, Interesting. So, uh, you know, one to send it and then one to claim it on the, on the receiving. Yes. Chain. Okay. Uh, and so how do you get composability when you have to send two transactions to two separate blockchains? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think that's a pretty valid critique. Uh, mm-hmm. the thing is, uh, you know, if you expand this like permission validator idea a little bit, you could say, okay, a validator has to have a certain like hardware requirements, uh, so that we know that they're like scaled up enough to handle the throughput of something like a Solana. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's where like, if you needed, needed to like market make, you would do it on your own subnet. Um, and then it would just be a question of getting the users to come over and use that, which they probably would because the gas fees would be lower. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, uh, yeah, I think interoperability in the subnet spaces is, is really the name of the game here. You want chains within 
like if you want to be interoperable, you basically have to be within a subnet so that you know that like all the validators have like knowledge of all the different blockchains. Like yeah. even just like the like otherwise you have to send it back to the like AVAX main chain. Yeah, so that's right? what I was gonna say. Like, you know, if you kinda wanted to make this interoperable world where you know, these metaverses can communicate with each other. Like, that's that's quite hard, right? Like, you have to somehow make those assets interoperable, right? Or even taking it f- to, like, DeFi, right? Like, if you have one chain that's, like, a lending and borrowing chain, and you have another chain that's, like, a swap chain, and you have another chain that's, like, a um, like an options exchange, and then another chain that's, like, an options vault, right? Like... Yeah, how do you very hard to get those assets to be tracked across those chains, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the X chain is sort of like the the solution that Avalanche is pushing for uh, is that like most assets live most of the time on the X chain, okay, and then you bridge them to and from a different chain when you want to interact with the smart contract there. Mm. Uh, But I mean. You could imagine like if like all, all the users of, of Metaverse A and all the users of Metaverse B agreed, they could start enforcing, you know, they could, they could merge subnets, right? Mm. They could, because the subnet is really just a question of like who's validating what, right? So if Metaverse A and Metaverse B held a governance vote, they could change their protocols so that like the only validators that are allowed to validate either of them have to yes. be validating both of them. I see. Um, or you could have a, you know, a, a, the inverse scenario where like, you know, some people want to secede for metaverse a, yeah, they yeah, could yeah. start their own, um, their own subnet. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, because subnets are kind of flexible that way, right. You can sort of like governance you you can let governance drive like what you want to get done yeah yeah i guess like we don't know how people use this right like they they proposed the solution or created a solution and we're kind of going to see how people use the technology yeah hammer Um, looking for a nail yeah exactly exactly (laughs) um yeah like i mean i think that's important to emphasize is like this stuff isn't live and we like we're talking about use cases in a sense of like we don't really know what they'll look like like there might not be very many um i personally think there will be but um yeah, I mean, it opens up a door, like like it's a any, new design space. right? Yeah, like any good piece of technology makes things possible that weren't before. Yes, uh, and sometimes that's like you know orders of magnitude. Sometimes it's less, right? Uh, it's like marginal. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I guess like more. I guess we can bring this like more personal. Like, what is stuff that you're interested in that you think could be? You know, enabled or like that you've either heard about or that. Um, like you would want to see developers work on, um, that, you know, is possible now that wasn't before. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, um, well, I just want to be able to trade without paying $30 in fees, like first off. Right. And I mean, you know, yeah. And to be honest, that's a use case in itself. Like that, I don't think can be minimized where even if I'm, like just simply sending USDC between 
Yeah, like I like if I want to pay for like the subway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Using a blockchain. Yeah. Like or if I, I want to pay you. Like yeah. I want to pay even like when gas Do you really prices are low. Spend like a buck fifty seven on. Bucks. Yeah. Like yeah. I want to do that. Yeah, and I mean um, on on Avalanche today, even it's like a buck fifty, right? But like if we it's still if we high. Use the yeah. X chain, it would be way cheaper. Mm. Uh, or if we, mm. you know, if you and I opened up our own Lightning Network chain, right? Mm. Like because we basically don't have other friends, uh, <laughs> and so you know, might might as well allocate some capital there that just gets wash sent between the two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, like we could make it basically free. Um, and maybe we just pay somebody to validate that every once in a while. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think really the, the core thing here is, is scalability. Yeah. Um, but it's not like, I don't think it's an order of magnitude greater because like you mentioned, everything possible on a subnet and avalanche is possible on Solana as well. Yeah. Right. And the fees there are, are very low. Mm -hmm. The difference that I see is that, um, you can architect it a little bit better so that like nothing ever goes down the way that Solana goes down. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's like a little more reliable. Like if you, you know, if you had a rainy day fund for like, if you like got in a car accident or something, Mm -hmm. you might not necessarily want it on Solana just because even if it's in stable coins, just because what if it's down? Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, there like, there's a you know it's a little bit the reason why people still have gasoline cars if they're going camping mm-hmm. uh because mm-hmm. what what if what if something happens right oh, absolutely, uh, what if yeah. you break down in the desert mm-hmm. uh you you might you want a chain that's like you know set up so that it will work and where the incentives are correctly set for that so there's like a term for this right it's like prioritizing liveness yes versus prioritizing speed is it speed i have no idea what the but yes but But it's it's prioritizing liveness yeah 100 percent um so i mean uh the other thing that's really interesting just from like a uh, maybe even a more academic perspective is mev and like uh because mev like you know so the arbitrage example is a good example this is minor extractable value Mm -hmm. or maximum extractable value Mm -hmm. when it's your turn to produce a block Mm -hmm. you have the right to put whatever you want in that block as long Mm -hmm. as it's a valid transaction yeah um and so if you see an arbitrage opportunity you should take that for yourself Mm -hmm. right it's in your own best interest and you'll do it other people will too Mm -hmm. um and so uh being a validator on one blockchain gives you that right every so often. But if you also validate a subnet, Mm -hmm. then you substantially increase the amount of arbitrage and similar opportunities you can, you can have access to. Right. Uh, and you know, depending on the way it gets implemented, you may not even need to stake any other tokens or anything to have the right to, to do that validation. Yeah. Um, to, to propose another block. So, for me, this is like a pretty compelling bull case on on the AVAX token mm-hmm. is that it sort of grants you entry to that to that club, right? Mm. Like you have to have at least 2000 AVAX yeah, yeah. if you want to validate any of these things. Yeah, I mean, right? I think this is like why all the, you know, the last two years, the L1s have really outperformed everything, right? Like the L1 is where all the value is accruing, whether it's Avalanche, Solana, 
um, or Luna, just where because you have to have that on mm-hmm. any part of it. Sort of. Yeah, the incentive up. is to hold the token, and because that token is the, it's like the economic unit for everything, all the activity on that network, right? Yeah, but but also because the marginal token you hold gives you more access to to extracting MEV. Yes. Yeah, and right? like these proof of stake networks, like the more you have and the more you stake. The more higher often you get reward. to produce a block, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, as long as there's demand for block space and there's any kind of like uh, advantage to be gained from from having the right to insert a transaction wherever you want in your block, uh, the native tokens are going to hold value, right? Um, you can think of it like the net present value of of future MEV of the MEV, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, you see a little bit of this with Cosmos and it's, but it's a little weirder there because there's only 150 validators. So mm. you need a certain minimum amount of it, like a much larger minimum to, to be part of that club. Right. Yes. Whereas on Avalanche, like you could validate whoever's chain you feel like, uh, with a, a lower minimum, right? Like with thousands of other validators on commodity grade hardware like your laptop is way overpowered yeah Um, you know what we should do for one of these deep dives we should do a nice like compare and contrast between all these uh different solutions and like you know go through go through that um that's a great idea yeah okay awesome so i guess like you know we've gone through a lot of this we're also coming up like two hours um real quick let's just hit on kind of like future state how we see things evolving um and then like just some predictions um you know we've laid out the case on why people would want to use this on why developers would want to build on it on why users would want this um like do you see their vision playing out do you see the thesis playing out um no no really <laughs> no okay. and here's why uh mm-hmm. it's this interoperability thing right? okay uh people are already i think a little too ingrained mm. uh in the evm model in the model where you have this monolithic blockchain okay right um and so uh currently like you know you switch blockchains it's a pain in the ass mm-hmm. right even though it's super easy relatively speaking because you add the network to your MetaMask and then you select the chain ID and yeah. you know, all of that, uh, you still have to click. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah, yeah. uh, and you know, it's the, the tooling is not built out. Like you said, at the very start of this to abstract away all of the difficulty. So that's what I was going to say. Like, you don't think in the next couple of years, like this stuff gets abstracted away where you don't even realize you're using avalanche where it's like, you've just got like the wallet tech gets better. You know, you, you sign once, right? Like, let's just say you sign once and you, you lose a lot of the trust, trustlessness, right? Mm. Where you just sign once and it enables you to transact in whatever way, like, especially for gaming, right? Like, if, you know, and then there's like some kind of you know, server you're connecting to that actually handles the blockchain part of it. Um, but like, you don't, you don't see a world where like that part of it gets abstracted away and Avalanche just 
operates as the backbone or a lot of subnets operate as the backbone for a bunch of these applications? I mean, I think if we're moving toward that future, then I think Avalanche is the strongest contender okay. uh, because you can have trustless asset movement uh, across different subnets because mm-hmm. they're all validated by that same share, by validators at least share the, the center, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what world do you see playing out then, right? Like, is crypto never going to get to a billion users or is it going to get there in some other way? No, I think it's, I think it's Solana. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I really do. I think like, look, like how much ETH is Coinbase staking, right? Uh, they, it's a lot, right? Most of it. Uh, it's a lot. It's lot. like between Kraken, Coinbase, it's most of it. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't cost that much for them to also run a validator that is Solana level quality. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think they need to figure out their issues around like downtime and like spam transactions and DDoS, right? Uh, but I think that the software is sort of capable of enough like parallelization that like at a certain point that will get solved. Mm. Um, and uh, and I think if you think about any Web2 service today, mm. 20, 25 grand for a server is kind of laughably like not not an issue. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially if you can just rent it in the cloud. Right. Uh, and especially, especially once GPUs become cheaper, uh, just uh, by uh, just by nature of Ethereum moving to proof of stake. Yeah. So all of a sudden GPUs get cheaper. And so demand like will drop for the super high end ones and down to like the medium high end ones that are getting used on Ethereum now or, or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Like more supply on the market is going to make Solana validators cheaper and easier to run. And, uh, and the scale of that business is massive. Right. Uh, and so I think there's plenty of compute power to support that network to support Mm. or, or that level of transactions per second. Right. Uh, and I think that, um, it's better from a developer standpoint to like the, the reason Avalanche is so heavily incentivizing subnets or any of this is because they have to. Right, they have to incentivize developers to build because otherwise developers would naturally gravitate toward this like network effect of like building on Ethereum. Yeah, but isn't Solana doing the same thing? Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and it's harder there because everything's in Rust. It's in Rust, right? Too, but yeah. you know, you just copy uh, pasta. if you think there's any kind of like real future in the like Neon Labs, like Solana compatible EVM or yeah. whatever, like you know, like look at Apple, right? Like they had to build a whole compiler when they released their last uh, CPU or when they released their M1 CPU Mm -hmm. just to like, they had to build like a translation system to like get all of the Intel x86 architecture, like, like low, low level commands, like translated properly into the commands that function on their Silicon. Mm. Like that's a massive engineering effort to like really the core, like, like metal on chip level. Yeah. Uh, so abstracting between like solidity and rust is like not a huge thing by comparison. Right. Right. Um, and so if you believe there's any kind of future there, which I do, um, then I really think that the benefits of like, like if I was trying to build some DAP that I wasn't sure was going to work or whatever, and I wasn't part of a company and I, I never built a DAP before, mm-hmm. uh, I would do it on Ethereum so that like I can try to make it interoperable with, with that. Um, or I would do it on Solana so that I could try to make it scalable. Right. If I needed mm. that kind of scaling. Um, but I think, uh, I think on Avalanche, you're going to have this issue of like liquidity segmentation 
where like it is going to wind up being difficult for like for you to access capital in Aave and Compound and Uniswap and whatever if they're all stored in in separate blockchains. Yeah, I see. Um, so I, you know, I don't know exactly what I think the future looks like, but my like I would still think that, and it's not necessarily that this is that Solana's token stands to benefit mm -hmm. that much from this. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I do think that in terms of like onboarding a billion users, I think it's I think it's the best horse in the race. Awesome. awesome. What do you, what do you think, man? I am uh, the wrong person to ask. That is right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I don't know. Like I, I think it's an interesting uh, approach for sure. Um, I think that you know I can't speak to the tech that much. Uh, I don't particularly understand it nor do I care that much, right? Like, in the end, I think what I'm seeing in this space is that most of the things, it doesn't matter what chain you're on, look the same. There's not that much I can do on Avalanche that I can't do on Ethereum or on Solana or on Cosmos. Um, it might cost a little bit different. The UX, UI, you know, like it, what I'm looking at might be a little bit different, but... What I can do in the end, uh, it's all really the same. Um, so that is to me where we are in the industry. Um, and, you know, we've mentioned this through the conversation, but it's like a lot of the stuff that's being built now is core infrastructure. And that's not the stuff that people are going to really interact with that much in the end, right? Like they're, they're going to interact with it, but they're not going to know that they're interacting with it too much. And so now it's going to come down to what gets built on this core infrastructure that's uh, better than everything else, right? So if there are more apps on Avalanche that gain traction than there are on Solana, I think, you know, we're just at a point in the industry now where the best experience is going to win right like there's enough users now where you can build up a pretty big network and gain that network effect where the best tech might just not catch up right like i mean there's a reason ethereum is still number one by far right like you, you could very reasonably make an argument it's not the best tech anymore yeah right um but it's still number one by far um, so I just think that's where we are in the industry. It's like, I think a lot of it, you know, it, it might just come down to BD. It might come down to, uh, it's like product market fit. Yeah. Like application might, layer. Exactly. Yeah. Like layer. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like nobody, but the nerds are really going to care that this is taking place on a subnet versus something else. Right. Unless like, it's like, you know, makes the user experience way better, or way worse in, in, you know, like whatever the user experience is for, uh, you know, like a gamer might not be the same user experience for uh, a financial uh, user which also might not be the same user experience for an app developer, right? So some of these chains might be optimized for each of those different groups, right? So like I could easily see a world where Solana wins and Avalanche wins and Ethereum wins and Luna wins and uh, Cardano loses. <laughs> yeah, but like, I definitely see like this multi-chain world. Like, I don't think we need more than 
one or two or three maybe at the most, but I think we'll probably end up having five or six yeah. uh, big ones, maybe a couple other smaller ones. And I mean, um, if you think about like operating systems, right? Yeah, like, exactly. like Windows is a gamer specialized, mm-hmm. enterprise specialized operating yeah. system. And mm-hmm. if you think about Mac, it's more on the creative student, you yes. know, tech side. Uh, and, uh, they both win, right? Yeah, like they exactly. Both, and you still have Linux. Linux, is, and, Linux yeah. is like on 80% of all computers. Yeah, like, exactly. Uh, they all won. If you look at the stock prices alone of, of Microsoft and, and Apple, like they won. Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, Microsoft, you can sleep on it, but has done extremely well as a business. I mean, it's like one of the top five companies by market cap in the world. It's, sometimes it's number one, right? Yeah. Like, and, so. and I mean, their operating system user experience has gotten way, way better over the last few mm-hmm. years. So, yeah. I mean, you know, you can see a world with multiple winners for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solun, AVAX is very safe, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're kind of solidifying what about around that EOS? world. Oh, yeah, EOS. <laughs> you mean the, the old Solana? <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. I mean, I think that's a pretty good place to leave it, to be honest. Like, I was going to say we hit most of the topics. I think we got a pretty good mix of, you know, getting deep, deep into the tech, talking about some of the applications that are out there now some of the ones that might come up in the future i mean is there anything else you want to touch on uh no absolutely not i never want to talk about avalanche again yeah (laughs) i mean don't dm us (laughs) (laughs) all right well thank you for tuning in um this was another episode of the decent crypto podcast we will catch you decent deep dive the very first decent deep dive we will be back on what uh what are we doing mondays for sundays oh yeah sunday evenings yeah sunday evenings you'll probably get to it on monday morning you know as a normal normal human being Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) see you soon Uh, none of this was financial advice legal advice investment advice or any other kind of advice Uh, if you're looking for advice you are definitely in the wrong place Uh, until next time stay decent